about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring John Girock, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing, writing, and stories. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with John Girak about fly fishing, writing, and stories. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website, BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce John, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under John's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of John's book, A Fly Rod of Your Own, courtesy of Simon & Schuster. Now, here's how you can win John's book. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that John and I talk about during the show. You, have, you must submit your answer along with your name and your location using that text box on our homepage, the same one that you can ask questions in during the show. So listen closely and uh, take notes, and hopefully you'll win John's book, A Fly Rod of Your Own. Our guest tonight is John Girak. John is a freelance writer living in northern Colorado. He's the author of 21 books, including Trout Bum, Sex, Death, and Fly Fishing, Standing in a River, Waving a Stick, and A Fly Rod of Your Own, some of which have also been published in Norway, Japan, and France, as well as numerous magazine articles, essays, and columns. He is a regular columnist for the Redstone Review in Lyons, Colorado, and was the outdoor correspondent for the Longmont Daily Times Call newspaper in Longmont, Colorado, for 21 years, and as a columnist for the Fly Rod and Reel magazine for 25 years. This column now appears quarterly in Trout Magazine. 
John is the recipient of the Arnold Gingrich Angling Heritage Award from the Theodore Gordon Fly Fishers of New York, the Federation of Fly Fishers Roderick Haig Brown Award, and the Penn New England Theruli Award for Excellence in Sports Writing. He was named Fly Rod in Real Magazine's Angler of the Year in 2000 and was inducted into the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame at Catskill Fly Fishing Center and Museum in 2015 and won the National Outdoor Book Award for Outdoor Literature in 2017. He has received awards for his columns and editorials from the Colorado Press Association. So, John, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Happy to be here. Good. Got you off the river or the lake or the stream or whatever to sit down and talk for a few minutes. That's great. So um, did you fish today? I didn't fish today. I fished yesterday, and I'm going again tomorrow. Oh, okay. We're good. Good. Well, uh, first question up is what came first, fishing or riding? Uh, fishing. I um, I was at a family reunion a while ago, and we found, going through old photo albums, we found what we think is the a picture of me posing with my first fish, which is it was a pitifully small bullhead. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I'm about three feet tall, and the fish is about the size of a parenthesis on a page. And um, and as near as any, there's no date on the photo, but as near as anybody can tell, that was taken in 1950, which would have made me four years old. So, and I wasn't I wasn't writing then. I'm not sure I even knew how to read. <laughs> not very well, anyways. <laughs> At least not very well, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. I would have to say fishing came first. Yeah, yeah. Do you consider yourself today a better fly fisher or a better writer? I would hope I'm a better writer than I am a fly fisher. <laughs> um, yeah. I, and I, I, say, I say that because I work harder at writing than I do at fishing, although, you know, anybody who fishes knows you work at it. But. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, most definitely, yeah. Did you, you know, when you were young, did you ever see writing as a career, a full-time profession, or did you have your eye on some other type of career? I never really had my eye on any other career. Um, I'm not sure when it was that I decided I wanted to be a writer, I always, I was always one of those kids with their nose in a book. Not to say that I was a great student or anything like that, but you know, I just read. I, I read everything except what the teachers assigned in school, and um, so I always liked books. And I think I slowly <coughs> came to realize that people made a living at this, and it started to sound like that might be a good idea. Of course, I had the, you know, I, I, I pictured um, a luxurious life where you made all the money in the world and did whatever you wanted. But, uh, you know, I pictured, I pictured something like the later Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> not, not the early Ernest Hemingway of a movable feast where, you know, it was all he could do to come up with enough money for a bottle of cheap wine and, enough yeah, paper to write yeah. on. But, uh, yeah, I don't know when it exactly happened, but probably 
probably sometime in later high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Do you remember your first published piece, whether it be an article in a magazine or a book? Um, yeah, actually, my first published piece was uh, a poem in a, a high school literary magazine. Uh, maybe 1964, something like that. Mm-hmm. No, it would have been earlier than that. Anyway, um, I remember, I do remember the first one I was ever paid for. Okay. That was in ni- 1976. I remember because that's when I moved to my old house here near Lyons, Colorado. And, uh, yeah, 1976. And I remember so, it, was an, it was about a, a month's pay at the time. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you got to understand the jobs I was working in, right? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I, was not a, I was not in the executive suite at the time. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, having been a, um, a commercial photographer myself and uh, trying to get pieces published, um, it's a hard road to go, and uh, and generally doesn't pay very well, you know. So yeah, um, at least at those beginning stages, and for the articles and so forth. So I hear you have been there, and uh, not in the writing sense, but in the photography sense more. But um, and I think it's still pretty much that way. <laughs> I don't think things have changed too much. So um, I think what was it in your book? Uh, All fishermen are liars. Is that the first chapter of that book that you kind of got, went through a, uh, a, a autobiography, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So kind of share some of the things from that piece of, you know, the journey you, you took to get where you are today. Well, um, I wanted to be a writer, and um, I spent a long time not getting published, uh, and then I st- started to get published, and I think the early, you know, I haven't gone back, I'm not one to go back and read old work. I suspect that some of that early stuff wasn't very good, but it was good enough, and, you know, things were different then. Um, There was no internet, no computers, no blogs, no websites, no nothing, so everything was in print. And everybody paid. They didn't always pay well, but people would pay for the work. So once you started getting published, and I was working basically labor jobs anyway. I wasn't being paid a lot of money. Um, it was a bit of a struggle, but it wasn't all that hard to actually start making some kind of a living at it. And... Um, God, it just it just kind of ballooned from there. I think I was lucky in that when I started writing about fly fishing, uh, the sport itself was still kind of a sporting backwater. Not a lot of people did it. Everybody sort of remembered their grandpa fly fishing, but most fishermen were spin fishermen, and um, you know there were little enclaves of. of fly fishermen, mostly up in the northeast. There was one magazine that catered to it, Fly Fisherman Magazine. 
and as the sport got popular, I was just sort of there. I was sort of one of the guys that was there, um, along with a handful of others. So I got work, and uh, fly fishing the West started up, and I can't remember. There were a bunch of magazines back in those days. And they had to fill their pages, and they did pay. And um, so I, I sort of had a, a marginal career. Um, I did have to, I did have to keep a day job for a number of years. And then I landed a, uh, a job as an outdoor columnist at a daily newspaper. And that was sort of when I quit my last regular job. Ah. Oh. You know, something that uh, was more regular in uh, in pay, huh? Yeah, yeah. No you writing. know, yeah. none of it paid a lot, but when you added it all up, it was as much as I was making doing the kind of jobs I was doing, and I was having a lot more fun. I yeah. Mean, I, you know, all of a sudden I had to go fishing because it's my job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> an interesting um approach um the um now a lot now i don't know about your your very early work um most all the books that i've collected of yours um are all uh you know a compilation of short stories uh put most, together most of them are yeah 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 did um how did you arrive at that format did that come about in any particular way or you just gave it a try or somebody asked you to do it or how did that how did that well it it was pure logistics the first fishing book i wrote uh, was called fly fishing the high country and that was that was a continual narrative from beginning to end um mostly a how-to book but uh I've always been the kind of writer who doesn't mind telling stories and making asides and observations and whatnot. And that did well enough that um, the publisher asked for another book. And at that point, I had, um, I don't know, 20 to 22 essays that I published in magazines and so I collected them into a book, and that was Trout Bum, which, um, you know, didn't didn't do great at the beginning. I mean, at, you know, I earned back my advance, which wasn't much, and um, it started to sell, and it got this kind of word-of-mouth reputation. And, gosh, that came out in 19... 19- I want to say 1986. Actually, I might have it right here. Uh, yeah, Trap Up, 1986. And um, it's still in print. So it it's done pretty well for me. Yeah, I'd say. It's, it's in, uh, it's in um, any number of editions. Um, there's been gift editions. There's been limited editions. There's been three uh, separate hardback editions. There's been paperbacks. There's a Japanese, Norwegian, and French editions. Uh, it, it's 
been a good little book for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, quite the, uh, quite the journey that book's taken for sure. And that was the first one that that had a collection of uh, stories in it. Yeah. And then did you? And, and after that, you kind of followed the same format then. Well, I did, but a lot of it was just logistics. You know, I was writing for magazines, writing a lot for magazines. Okay. And, um, and not all of it was, you know, stuff for the ages. I mean, a lot of it was just one-time work. But, um, you know, the better stuff that seemed to go, seemed to maybe transcend the subject a little bit or maybe address the human condition a little bit through fishing, I would, uh, I would collect those. And I was putting out so much work at the time that I really didn't have time to stop and write a book cover to cover. Hmm. So I just got into this program of collecting essays. And they did. They, they sold. People seemed to like them. And, um, and I started, pretty soon started to um, take, I would take these essays and instead of just throw them together in a book, I would find um, a logical order and I would read them all and think about what, what's my theme, what am, I, what, what am I getting at, what have I been thinking about for the last couple of years. And then I'd rewrite the thing as a as a coherent book. So, you know, there I tend to think of them more in terms of linked essays than okay. just an anthology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. And you know, some of that's just logistics. I mean, if I introduce A.K. Best in chapter two, two, I don't have to reintroduce him and say who he is in chapter five. I see. Yeah, yeah. Right, and sense. some of it's yeah. some of it's just as simple as that. But then, there are also thematic uh, and technical things that have to change. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Let's take a uh, quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, talk more with John about uh, writing and uh, his essays and stories that uh, that have become so popular. So, stay with us. We'll be right back, folks. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with John Girock about fly fishing, writing, and stories. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. 
So, John, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world today? Um, tell us what you're up to. Well, I'm kind of winding down uh, at the end of the season now. I was um, uh, I was up in um, Labrador in August for uh, about a week and a half, and uh, that's that's just a great a great place. It's um, it's a place called Three Rivers Lodge on the Wood River system up there, and. In fact, I sat down with the owner one night, and we were trying to remember if that was my ninth or tenth trip up there. Oh, wow. It's, um, it's one of those places you just kind of, first you fall in love with the fishing, uh, then you fall in love with the place, then you fall in love with the people, um, and pretty soon you just, you know, after a, a maybe two or three years, you just have to go back. You know, I know the dogs. I know everybody. It's it's great, and uh, and it does happen to have the largest brook trout in the world. Yeah. So um, it's it's kind of hard to stay away from. Uh, and then I was um, just recently up in uh, Wisconsin on the Flambeau River fishing with uh, my uh, my artist friend Bob White, wonderful painter. He's he's painted the two of the last three covers of my books and uh, uh, just can't say enough about him. Great guy, wonderful artist. And we were fishing muskie on the on the flambeau uh, for a couple of days. And then I'm back and I've been out a little bit since then, but um, I've got a new book in the works and I have to I have to uh, buckle down and start on that uh is the flambeau river uh is that have to do with lock the flambeau West yeah Johnson? is that the same neck of the woods it's the same neck of the woods um yeah the the indians used to uh, the anishinaabe used to um fish that at night with uh with torches because the torches would attract the fish they thought Maybe they do. I don't know. And the uh, French explorers saw these guys out in their canoes at night with torches, and they thought it made the river look like it was on fire. So they called it the flambeau. Oh, uh, I love that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My uncle used to have a cabin on. I, I don't remember the lake. I, I just like the flambeau. I, I don't know. There's. I know there's interconnected lakes there, and I don't know how the system mm -hmm. works. But. Um, uh, I was up there with my son, and my son was, oh, maybe about 10 or something. And so we went out uh, looking for muskie in a boat. And the last thing that my uncle puts in is a small baseball bat, like a t-ball bat, into the boat. Right. And so <laughs> and, uh, and my son goes, what's that for? I thought we were going fishing. He goes, well, these fish are pretty big out here. So then he got my son going. You know, uh, he says they're huge fish. And when we got out there, he showed us the old figure eight in the water, you know. Yep. by the boat, and, yep. and you got to understand, my uncle, he was really quite the uh, prankster, so we all thought he was pulling our leg anyway, right? And uh, sure enough, that figure eight worked, and uh, and just blew my son's mind <laughs> at, the, at the time, but it's, it's a good memory, and uh, that's the one memory I have for Lock the Flambeau, but uh, we'll never forget the figure eight or the, the baseball bat. <laughs> 
So yeah, well, anyway, you yeah. know, back in the old days, those guys used to carry snub nose thirty eights to shoot the muskie. <laughs> yeah, God. yeah, they'd get it up to the boat and they'd shoot it in the head. So they wouldn't have it to was, handle it in the boat, huh? Yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, it wasn't a lot of catch and release back then. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, quite the, quite the area, but beautiful area up there. It's just fantastic. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, good, good. We got a question in here from Carl, who's in Connecticut, um, and he he wrote in, uh, "Love your work, and like most of your fans, cannot wait for your next publication." Does Al Anderson, former member of the New Rhythm and Blues Quartet, remark that he finds it challenging to write a short song? As your writings have been traditionally short stories, do you think it's harder to write a condensed story rather than a full-length novel? Well, I don't know if that's true or not. Some some subjects lend themselves to a shorter form. In fact, most do. Um, I think the failing of a lot of full-length books is that they didn't have a book. You know what I mean? They didn't have enough material for a book. They had enough material for a good essay, and they padded it out into a book. I won't mention any names, but you, you've seen it done. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know that it's harder, although you do sort of have to bear down a lot harder in the writing. Um, Fewer asides, fewer observations. I mean, you have to ask yourself that old uh, fiction writer's question, does this either develop character or further the plot? And if it doesn't do either of those things, then probably it shouldn't be in there. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a, a longer narrative, you can drop something, you know, assuming I'm a, a compulsive editor, I, I do dozens and dozens of edits, edits for each piece, assuming you're going you're gonna to edit the thing numerous times, you can drop things somewhere in a book and pick them up a couple of chapters later. And so you can spread out a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's probably easier for me to write at around three to 4,000 words just because that's what I generally do. Yeah. That's my main program. So yeah, it's yeah. probably easier just because I have a, I have a sense for that form. But uh, I've written a few full-length things, and um, it's not, I don't know, I don't see it as that different. Okay. It's just, okay. It's just you know, where does this go? Usually a story, you know, most of my writing, it's sort of part sports writing, part memoir, part travel writing, um, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and it just yeah, seems I... to, it just seems to fall more comfortably into a shorter form. Yeah, I read, um, I was actually impressed by, um, I'm trying to find it, it's, well, it was. it's one of the chapters in um, All Fishermen Are Liars, and mm-hmm. it's about when you went steelhead fishing, I believe in Oregon, uh-huh. 
And uh, I go, I, I think what I like about a lot of your writing and a lot of your, your stories about fishing trips is that I can put myself in that spot many times. <laughs> I've, mm-hmm. I've been there. But what, what intrigued me about that one is that you made a story, it, it's kind of like uh, Seinfeld, uh, you know, a story about nothing. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. But because it, what, when I'm, what I'm trying to say is the trip wasn't a great trip for you for fishing, right? I mean, you didn't, you know. Oh, right. Fishing was lousy. The weather was lousy. And, and then you managed to make that into an interesting story <laughs> about a kind of a bad fishing trip. But, uh, and yet nobody died or anything. <laughs> but uh, right. I, I thought you did rather, you know, did, that was interesting on how you handled that, uh, you know, that adventure. So well, but. you know, that's one advantage a writer has over a regular fisherman is that if I have a trip that goes right in the toilet, okay, the trip went in the toilet, but it could still be a good story. Right. In yeah. fact, in fact, there's usually more of a story in a trip where things don't go well than, I mean, so, you know, you, you travel to some place, there's no trouble with the travel. You get there, everything's fine, the food's good, the fishing's great, you catch a lot of fish and you go home. Yeah. Um, yeah but when things, story, when, huh? yeah, when <laughs> yeah. things start to go wrong, um, you know, the weather socks in or the fish aren't biting, then there's, that's your drama, right? Yeah. Now there's some yeah. drama. Gosh, what's going to happen next? So, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, it's probably a little easier to write a story about a trip that's got some—I don't know if I could legitimately call it hardship, but you know, yeah, has yeah. a few things that go wrong. I think that's you know, like I do relate to a lot of the stories, and I think other people do too. I mean, you also wrote in that book uh, a story about—I think it was up in Labrador where you were. Uh, a storm came up, and you were trying to get back to the lodge, and and mm-hmm. you know, I remember it just brought back a memory of me of. Like Kississing up in northern Manitoba, it's like 250,000 acres, and we were out of lake, and we were out, uh, and the sun was starting to set, and the guide couldn't get the motor started, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> you know, how are we going to get back? Because we hadn't seen a boat in probably four hours, you know? So it's like, oh, my God. But that reminded me of that trip that we had taken. So I'm sure that, that's what happens with a lot of people. Um Phil McCartney, who's a longtime listener of ours, has written in a bunch of questions on the Internet. So uh, one of them he asks here is, he says, please remind me of how you met A.K. Best and decided to fish together. Um, I met A.K. Best when we both worked at a flat um, shop uh, in uh, Boulder, Colorado. What? I, you kind of broke up there. Oh, um, we we. I'm getting some beeping here or something. Um, you still there? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, we were both working at a fly shop in Boulder, Colorado, and just hit it off. Huh. Uh, it's pretty simple. I mean, it wasn't any great, um, yeah. you know, romantic comedy or anything. We just... Yeah, we hit it off. We we said, well, maybe we ought to go fishing together. We went fishing together, um, got along, and became great friends. Yeah, yeah. Another one, uh, another person I interviewed recently was Ed Engel, 
And mm -hmm. I believe he said, said you, the two of you met in um, a writing class of some sort or poetry or something like that? Yeah, yeah, we met. Um, Ed's, Ed's my oldest continuous friend. Um, and, yeah, we were both in, um, he was going to the University of Colorado at Boulder, and um, I was actually driving a garbage truck in those days and trying to be a freelance writer. <laughs> and we met through some poetry workshop or something or other. And, um, yeah, same thing. We just we were both into the outdoors, both like to hike. He did a little climbing. Um, I was never much of a climber. Uh, we liked hunting. We liked fishing. And we just hit it off and have, in fact, have a uh, correspondence uh, that has lasted uh, about a half a century now, right back oh, wow. and forth constantly. Yeah. Well, back in those days in Boulder, too, uh, yeah, climbing was, was really hot back then. I remember I was in Boulder in late 60s, early 70s, and um, rock climbing was a big deal back then. I did some. And um, I had a guy who was teaching me to, uh, you know, I'd done some bouldering and just some real basic stuff. And the guy was teaching me some more advanced stuff, you know, using protection and, and ropes and such. And he went off to climb St. Mary's Glacier one weekend and fell and was killed. Mm. And I thought, geez, you know, this is serious. Uh, maybe yeah. I better stick with fly fishing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, not I to make li not to make light of it, but when your teacher falls and dies, yeah, it's, it, it yeah. kind of makes you sit up and take notice. Yeah, yeah. Along the lines of now, I know uh, Ed Ingle and um, A.K. Best are both writers as well. They've written some books on mm -hmm. fishing. Um, uh, so those are authors you're friends with. Uh, did they help you become a better writer? Do you share any anything in the way of writing with each other, or is it all a fishing relationship? Um, AK and I have never shared much in terms of writing, uh, but I've gotten reams of material out of him because he's he's just a hoot. Um, one of the first times we went. Uh, we went fishing together. I noticed he was keeping his reels in those those purple and gold drawstring bags that Seagram's Crown Royal comes in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> and, and, yeah, a lot of people know that. And I said, <laughs> I said, that's a good idea for a reel bag. And he said, oh, you want some? I got hundreds of them. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So he was okay. always one of those guys. He was a delightful, happy drunk. Never <laughs> never got sloppy, never crashed the car, never you know, he just he yeah. just liked to drink and he was real entertaining. And um I don't know, he taught me a lot about fly fishing. I I was kind of a beginner when we met and he'd been doing it for years. He's uh thirteen or fourteen years older than I am. Oh. And um you know, I don't. I don't think he was exactly a father figure, but he was kind of a mentor, and yeah. he just he just showed me a lot. And 
I remember one time there was a, we were on the Frying Pan River and there was this impossible to reach backwater way over on the far side of the river and the water between here and there was over your head and fast and there was a big fish rising over there and we stood and watched watched this fish for a few minutes and AK said were you going to cast to him and I said I can't make that cast and he said well and you never will if you don't try and I thought yeah exactly that's the kind of stuff I get from AK. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's also, and yeah, that applies to writing, but none of it was specifically about writing. Ed and More I, on the other hand, yeah. yeah. Ed and I, on the other hand, have talked uh, over the years quite a bit about writing and how it works, how it should work. Mm -hmm. And the business of it, too, which is, you know, writers... Everybody thinks writers sit down and uh, together and talk about art, but mostly they sort of mostly it's like whining about money and the character assassinations of editors you both know. <laughs> those damn editors, huh? Yeah. But Ed Ed's one of those valuable friends that just has a way of setting me straight, and he does it on a pretty regular basis. Um, more often than I'd like to have to be set straight, if you know what I mean. We were at a place signing books one time, and I was in a bad mood for some reason, God knows why. And a guy came up, and he said, boy, what a life you have. All you do is fish. And I said, well, who the hell do you think writes the books? <laughs> and it... You know, it took him back a little bit, and then I signed his book, and he left. And Ed leaned over, and he said, you know, if they think the writing is effortless, that's a compliment. Okay. That's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing Ed does for me. Hmm. You know, yeah. just very gently and politely says, you're wrong, and here's, <laughs> here's, and here's why. Yeah, yeah. And we're yeah. good enough friends that we can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lee in Connecticut um, wrote in and she says, if you were starting out today, would you still write books or would you go electronic with a blog or a video series? And uh, why, if you would know any of those questions? Well, you know, I've had any number of people, writers, come to me and say, how do you get started and I finally just had to say, look, I can tell you how to get started in 1969, but not now. I can tell you how to get started in print, but I really don't know what you're supposed to do now. Um, you know, I don't have a website. Uh, I don't have a blog. I'm not on YouTube. Um, my publisher has a website for me. Uh, there's a couple of, let's say, Amazon, I think, has a publisher or a, a author's page, stuff like that. I'm on there, but not under my own power, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. and, and, you know, I have people occasionally call and want me to, want me to write for their blog or their website, and I just say, well, what does it pay? And they go, oh, it doesn't pay anything, but you get the exposure. And I say, well, 
I've been doing this for 45 years. I have the exposure. That's why you called. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I need to get paid. Yeah. So I, I honestly don't know how you do it. I mean, a lot of guys will start a website and get sponsors and get sell ads and do all that. And it could be that's how you have to do it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, content development nowadays on the Internet is extremely important. And it's one of the areas that businesses um, and individuals have struggled with. Uh, sure. It's not, it's not easy to develop good content, and especially content that attracts visitors. And that's the whole secret, you know. So, mm-hmm. um you know, yeah, it is a different game today, and uh, but still, content is king. You know, uh, whether it's print or digital, uh, it's still what, what drives a lot of you know advertising and marketing and all that stuff. So, oh, I yeah, yeah, I I agree. I mean, I have um, eBooks of of any number of my titles through the yeah. publisher, and I actually just signed a, a contract to do four. Um, Audiobooks. Uh, I've got three, is three or four. I think I've got three out, and they're doing four more. And so I, I mean, I have nothing against that, and I agree that that the good work will find an audience. Yeah. But I'm yeah. just, I'm basically just saying, I have no idea how it's done online. Yeah. Yeah. I still, yeah. uh, my. I think my ebooks are last time I checked they were about seven percent of my total income. Mm-hmm. And the rest is from paper books. And uh audio books is percentage is smaller than that. Yeah. So it's you know, it's something else to do and it does bring in a little but uh I think the majority of my readers are actually readers and they Go get yeah. a paper book and sit down in an easy chair with a with a beer and read. Well, there's there's many of us that still like to have a book in their lap. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, my kids give me hell because I have a pretty big library. <laughs> it was we were debating whether it hit two thousand or not, uh, and I mm-hmm. I don't think I have two thousand books, but I got a lot of books, you know, and. And my kids are worried about when I die, you know, how are we going to get rid of all the books, you know? And I said, well, it's one thing you have to suffer through because I'm not getting rid of my books. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but nowadays too, you, you mentioned the audio books. Um, you know, I, I live, I spend half my time in Bailey, Colorado, and then half my time down in Boulder, so it's an hour and fifteen minute drive. And mm-hmm. so I signed up for Audible, which I, I think is what you're talking about getting your books on, right? Audible? Uh, that's well, yeah. The the first batch were um, uh, CDs. Oh, okay. And they'd come in a box with some CDs in it. And then this oh, okay. next this next uh, four are going to be on. They're going to be downloadable. I guess that's Audible. And then they've got the option to do a physical uh, disc as well if hmm. they want to. Okay. Yeah, the ones on Audible. You know, I just. Uh, download them onto my phone and then plug it into my car stereo and listen to the books. And I read about twice as many books a year by, you know, listening to the books as as well yeah. as reading. So, so that's I, a good uh, way to get. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm going to do a long driving trip, I'll go down to the library and take out a stack of uh, audio books. 
yeah. uh, discs, and, and I, I typically get about twice what I think I'll need because uh, an audio book is a wonderful companion on a solitary drive, but a stinker of a book is awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, it's, if it's all you've got um, and you don't want to listen to AM radio, you're, you're sunk. So yeah. I typically get a, a stack of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's um, let's take another quick break here, and uh, we'll come back and talk more about riding and fishing. So hang with me, and we'll be right back. Looking for a shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray and then C-A-Y-E FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with John Girock about fly fishing and writing and stories. So if you'd like to ask John a question, go to our homepage and uh, fill out that Q&A text box. Send us in your question. We'll try to, we'll try to get to them before the nights end here. Uh, John, Tom Mills in Orlando wrote in here on the Internet. He, he wants to know, what irritates you the most about the fly fishing industry? Oh, well, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> That's why I think he asked it. <laughs> Thinking you'd have a response. Huh? <laughs> it's it's tempting to say podcast, but that wouldn't be true. Um, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, let's I, not say that. <laughs> I think it's just this sort of endless lust for more and bigger fish and racking up numbers and, you know, it's that competitive uh, thing that I I don't know where exactly it comes from. Uh, it's probably more a male thing. I will say the women fly fishers I know tend to enjoy the individual fish more than the guys. To a guy, you know, a fish is, unless it happens to be huge, it's number 15. And to many of the women I, I know and have fished with, it's, they'll say, well, look at that. Isn't that a pretty fish? And they'll admire it. And they'll let it go, and maybe they'll go sit on the bank and look around for a minute. Uh, it's how I try to fish now. I'll admit it took me a while to get there. But that's one of the advantages of having done it for a long time. But I just, you know, magazine after magazine and websites and everything is more and bigger fish. And uh, I think there's a little more. I think people are stealing some of the enjoyment out of it when they make it competitive. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I think what you're you're talking about too is that a lot of things that in life are that way, which is the journey is the enjoyable part, not necessarily the destination. You know, and. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of the same way with big, you know, trying to get that trophy fish. Well, that's a, that's a good uh, goal to set, maybe, but it's really the journey that gets you there that's probably the most enjoyable part, or or the most frustrating, or or whatever. But uh, that's yeah. what you remember 
most. Yeah, but but the the frustration is just a test of character. Yeah. Um, You know, most of the people I know, but most of the people I know of my generation who took up fishing, I mean, they didn't take lessons. There weren't lessons, and there weren't instructional videotapes because there were no videotapes. And they'd just get a rod, and they'd go down to the hardware store and buy a handful of flies, and they'd go out and flog the water until some old gray-haired guy like me would come along and say, excuse me, son, do you mind if I make a suggestion? <laughs> and they'd pick it up that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, God, I bet I fished. I know I fished for a whole season without catching a trout on a fly. Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. Oh, yeah, because yeah. I, I had no idea what I was doing, except yeah. that I secretly carried some sinkers and hooks so I could uh, dig a worm if, if like, if trout were on, <laughs> if trout were on the menu. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I go back to those early days. I think it was 1966 or something in Boulder when I first started learning how to fly fish. And there used to be a farmer's pond up in Table Mesa. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Sure. Right at the base of the mesa. Yeah. Had bass yeah. in it and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was walking distance from our house there. And I, I had the fortunate to to have a, uh, this other father two doors down from me who knew how to tie flies. So he taught me how to tie a mosquito fly. I still remember I took it up to that farmer's pond, caught a largemouth bass, and that was it. And I was hooked because <laughs> it was, you know, it was such a joy to have created something and used it to, to catch a fish. But uh, that pond is long gone and filled in with dirt and houses now. And kind of Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's a condo sitting on it right now. Yeah, yeah, but... Um, well, you know, when you, um, you know, the, 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 most of the stories you have, uh, some are your your view on fly fishing or parts of fly fishing of the industry. But a lot of them are, um, you know, experiences, fishing experience that you've had. You know, what inspires you to write about those? Because I'm sure you've had much, many more experiences than than you've written art, you know, written essays about. Um, so, you know, what what sparks your interest? Do you, do you have an inkling that when you're on the trip, this is going to be a story, or does that come about later on? How does how does that happen for you? Um, well, sometimes I go expressly for a story. Um, uh, not too long ago, last I think it was a year ago, spring. Uh, actually, it was more like March. I went out to uh, Pyramid Lake in Nevada to do winter fishing for those Lahontan cutthroat trout that are out there. And, you know, I mean, that involves a plane ticket and some expense and time. So I always figure, all right, I'll, let's see if we can get a story out of this. And did. Um, I mean, I have been doing this a long time, and I can usually find an angle on a trip. If I fish, if I spend a week hanging out and fishing someplace, I can usually find an angle that I like for a story. Um, But, you know, as I tell people, if I take a trip and it turns out there's no story, it just means I have to go fishing again right away. (laughs) Yeah, the editors are waiting, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, and, you know, some some trips... um, 
I really don't make a profit on. But it, if it's someplace I want to go anyway, um, I wanted to go up to the Tree River in Nunavut, which is next door to the Northwest Territories, and fish for sea run Arctic char. And you know that was that was a little pricey and time consuming. But uh, but then there's days I get a, a story that, uh, you know, for a, a gallon of gas and a thermos of coffee, too, so. Right, right around the it, corner, huh? Yeah. yeah, so it does sort of work out. Yeah, yeah. Um, does writing energize you or exhaust you? Oh, well, uh, it exhausts me when it's going badly, and it energizes me when it's going well. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Right? I mean, it's like anything yeah. else. If I spend a really good day and really get some good good work done, um, I'm just happy as a lark, you know. And if I've you slogged do. through a, a day and can't put two words together, uh, I'm exhausted. Yeah. Do you do much writing on your trips, or is it mainly done when you get back home? I don't write at all on trips. Um I don't own a laptop. I refuse to travel with one. Uh, what I do is I take usually pretty voluminous notes. Mm -hmm. And typically, well, you know, if I think I get a great idea for, um, you know, a great literary idea or a great metaphor or something like that, uh, I'll certainly write it down, although... In the heat of the moment, most of that stuff turns out to not be very good. I mean, you, you know, I'll get it home and look at it, and it reads like a Hallmark card. Um, what I take notes on is nuts and bolts, where I was, what happened day one, what happened day two, what happened day three, uh, the names of the people I was with, uh, how do you... How do you spell a Ziskahos Lake? How do you spell a Gulawak River? What language is that? Um, just real. What's the name of that mountain across the across the lake that's so weird looking? Well, it turns out it's Jackknife Mountain. Um, and I'll ask around um, why do they call it Jackknife Mountain? Turns out no one knows, but every once in a while you'll ask a question like that and get a great story. You know, get a great old pioneer, uh, you know, killing grizzly bears with a jackknife kind of story. Right. So I just, it's mostly real nuts and bolts. I mean, almost a journalist kind of, kind of notes. And because the, the rest of the stuff I'll remember. You know, the literary stuff I either remember or it falls out of the material later when I'm working on it. Did, um, and you prefer to write at, do you write at home or do you go to a coffee shop or where? No, I, I've got, uh, an office down in, uh, we've got a, um, um, I would call it a half basement in the house. Um, a real estate guy would call it a garden level. Mm -hmm. and charge another $10,000 for it. Uh, I've got a <laughs> downstairs office. Um, I'd probably have almost as many books as you do. It's just book-lined. Yeah. And, um, and I've got a 
L-shaped, uh, you know, two desks put together in an L-shape, and um, a big old clunky uh, desktop computer, and this is where I write. Okay. Coffee pot, coffee pot right at the top of the stairs. <laughs> got a well, got a wood yeah. got a wood stove that uh, that I used to heat it in the winter. That's where I am now. Yeah, my, yeah. My cat. I'm I'm sitting at the desk. And my cat thinks I'm working, so she's gotten in my lap now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got. We have one like that too. Um, usually, it's because she wants to, she wants to stay warm, or she's ready to eat, and trying to get your attention. <laughs> one of the two. Um, Tom Mills has a couple of questions here off the internet uh, too. Um, he says, uh, "How do you prefer to fly fish? Uh, do, you, do you like it with a guide, with friends, by yourself?" Um, gosh, I, I like it. However, it comes up. Um, yesterday, I was out by myself, which I really like a lot. I really like fishing by myself because. I think how you fish when you're alone is how you really fish. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not you're not showing off for anybody. You're not competing with anybody. You're just out there. And I tend to fish a lot slower. I tend to stalk more, try to pick fish and catch the fish I've picked out. Uh, I rest the water more. Um I just, it's just a real slow-paced thing. But then, um, and it was, the water was real low, and the sun was out. There were a few bluing olives coming off. Real touchy fishing. I managed to get a couple, and I was real proud of myself. So tomorrow, a friend of mine and I are going to go back and try it again because it's supposed to be cloudy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, I'm looking forward to that, too. Yeah. And guides, guides can be wonderful, um, or not. I mean, you know, uh, guides are like there's nothing better than a good one or worse than a bad one. But you don't get too many bad ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had a handful over the years that just didn't know what they were doing, and. Uh, and sometimes you can, you know, unless the guy's got a, a real macho attitude about it, you can, you can just start saying, could you, could you back row through here, slow down a little bit? Do you think you could get a little tighter to this bank, or do you think you could get a little farther away from this this run? And um, you know, the smart ones will just pick up on it, and uh, yeah. you give them a, a short course and. How to row a drift boat, and and then the good ones will end up giving me a short course in how to row a drift boat and how to fish a river. Yeah, and, um, yeah. I've I've learned a, an awful lot from guides. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My last experience down in Belize with an excellent guide. His name is Charles Charles Leslie, and um, it's amazing when some of these guides are so good that you don't even know all the stuff they're doing for you. You know what I mean? We got to talking later, and he goes, you know, he has trouble training new guides because they don't pay attention, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, positioning the boat with the wind properly so you're not going to hook yourself or the guide and, 
you know, just getting the right angle and the things that you were talking about is is incredible when you have a, a really good guide yeah. and uh, probably underappreciated by a lot of people. But yeah. one of the one of the first times I went steelheading with a, a two-handed rod, spay rod. I really kind of didn't know how to cast a spay rod. I'd fooled around with them a little bit. And I could get a decent cast out right-handed, but not so much left-handed. And I was floating the the shoots with a guide named Mark Bachman, who's a really excellent guide up in uh, Welch's, uh, Oregon. And we... At the end of the day, towards the end of the day, I remember thinking to myself, geez, you know, um, I can really only make a right-hand cast. It's really lucky that we're every run we fish is river right. And then I thought, oh, that's <laughs> not luck. Oh, no, that's not luck. He took yeah. one look at me casting and went, okay, got to put this guy in the easy spots. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 good story, yeah. Let me take one more break here, and uh, we'll come back and talk more, John, about uh, fly fishing and writing and stories. So, everybody, hang tight. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in waters for all of fish to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join the Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website, flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with John Girock about fly fishing, writing, and stories. If you'd like to ask John a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. And we do have some more questions coming in here on the Internet. Um, Phil McCartney in, in uh, Kentucky wrote in. He says, uh, do you have a stash of things you have written that you have not had published for run, one reason or another and which might be discovered many years from now and published to the delight of the public? <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my wife would wish that to be true. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I really don't. I... Um, I mean, I have a few things that I started and thought I had a really nice lead, and they didn't lead anywhere, and so they're sort of half or even less than half done, and they're just sitting in there um, waiting for me to figure out what the rest of the story might be. Um, But no, I tend to... If I start something and it goes nowhere, my tendency is to abandon it and move on to something else. And I do start things that go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, try not yeah. to do it all the time. But, yeah, I, I will sometimes start stories 
and I'll get five or six paragraphs in, and it just stops. Yeah. They're just, yeah. you know, I don't have anything more to say about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bob Fanter in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, wrote in here on the Internet, and he says, uh, I've read most of your books, and although they always deal with fishing, they carry so many other messages. What are some of your favorite themes? Well, uh, the uh, ridiculously uh, ridiculousness and folly of the human condition is uh, is a classic <laughs> theme in all of literature. And fishermen, you know, it's an odd business. We take fishing very seriously. We spend tremendous amounts of time and energy and money pursuing it. Uh, we invest our our whole being in it. But it's pretty hard to make an argument that it's important. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. if you don't catch a fish, it isn't like the village doesn't eat. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, so that just seems to me sort of really to really speak to the human condition. It's I would never call fly fishing an art. Some people do. I wouldn't. But... It resembles art in that going to all this trouble to catch fish in a certain way, you know, with a fly rod, and maybe you limit yourself even more and want to catch them on dry flies or something. Um, it's just a thing that it has no practical value, but it's beautiful. And it's one of those things we just do for its own sake so that... Uh, you know, asking a fly fisherman what's so interesting about fishing is like asking a investment banker what's so interesting about money. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you're just going to get a blank stare. Does that answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, I guess. <laughs> Listen, here's kind of a takeoff on this. Ryan Shea wrote in here. He's from uh, Fernley, Nevada. He says, one of my favorite chapters in your books is Camp Coffee. He says, if I need to get myself relaxed, I read one of your books. It's about the drive, the radio, the coffee, the views. He says, yeah, and that kind of goes to, you know, why we fly fish, you know, in the journey, I think, is what he's, you know, that he's talking about there. He says, do you have a story for Pyramid Lake? Um, well, I wrote an essay on it that I published in, um, let's see, where was that? That was Trout Magazine. That was my column in Trout Magazine. Um, story in Pyramid Lake. Yeah, they um, they put me in a, there's a, the, there's a little reservation town. That's the Paiute Reservation there. A little reservation town there of about 500 people. And there's, there is one business there. Um wish I could remember the name of it. But there's one business, but they do everything. They have a grocery store. They have a tackle shop. They have a country western bar. They have a casino. Uh, they rent trailers. They'll store your boat behind a chain-link fence. Um, prostitution is legal in Nevada. Uh, so, I mean, you, there's all Where else could a guy want? I mean, exactly, and then there's good fishing to boot. Um, 
but I was just fascinated by this this establishment and uh, spent actually ended up spending a lot of time there. I mean, we ate there. The food was the food was not good, but it was kind of on that American model that like you get a huge amount and it doesn't make you throw up, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, served its purpose for the moment. Yeah, I just remember uh, uh, they had the jukebox turned up so loud one night that I was eating a chicken fried steak, and I could see the impact craters from the jukebox, the impact tremors in the gravy on my steak. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I, I can imagine that. I can imagine that. The... Um, We've had two questions here on the Internet that um, came in uh, that are similar. Uh, both had to deal with if, if you had one last chance to fish or w where would you like to fish that you haven't fished, um, and who would you like to go with? Oh, well, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's hundreds of people out there I'd enjoy fishing with. Uh, I don't have... There isn't like somebody I really want to go fishing with that I haven't. Mm -hmm. um, where would I go? I've been trying to wangle a trip to um, uh, to Iceland for sea trout. I've oh. never caught never caught sea run brown trout, and um, I and I know there's there's good runs in Iceland, and I think you can slip in. You, know, you can pay a lot of money to fish Atlantic salmon there, but I think you can slip in under that kind of expensive, exclusive, snooty Atlantic salmon thing and fish for sea trout and uh, and not spend a bazillion dollars. But I haven't yet figured out how to how to make it work. But that's kind of on my radar. I've got a friend who fishes. Uh, C. D. Clark is another artist, and he fishes there. And has some contacts, and I'm going to have to gonna have to pick his brain about who I should call. But yeah, that's, that's one, one place I'd like to fish. Yeah. Now, do you do much in the salt and in the tropics? Is you know, I really never have. Um, I went down and tried flats fishing in the Keys a few times. Um, and Ed and I went down to uh, to uh, Baja and uh, fish rooster fish and Jack Crevel and some of that stuff. Um, you know, it just I can see why people would get into it, but for some reason, it just never really rattled my cage. Uh, I think a big part of it is I absolutely can't stand hot, humid weather. Oh, well, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. I remember going down to Baja and getting up. The big deal there was you'd get up before dawn and you'd go over and get your coffee. And we were right on the, a place called Punta Colorada, Muddy Point, um, which wasn't muddy at all. And we would sit there and look out over the Sea of Cortez and watch the sun come up. And I remember going over there, get my coffee. And I'm sitting there waiting for the sun to come up, and it's 97 degrees. Uh -huh. And I thought, I'm going to be miserable for a week. And 
actually wasn't because if you got the, you know, if the wind blew off the desert, it was like standing in the door of an of a blast furnace. But if it right. blew in from from across the Sea of Cortez, it was actually, by comparison, it was comfortable. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but the day I hooked a huge Jack Cravel, uh, 38 pounds. And, I mean, they don't get much bigger than that. And this is the first one I've ever hooked in my life. Total be- appalling beginner's luck. Did not deserve that fish. But we were out on a panga, and, and um, the rollers, you know, the sea was you know, about four-foot rollers, and it was hot as hell. And I just almost didn't survive landing that fish. I mean, I thought I was going to pass out. And so yeah, it was so hot. It's so it was hot. just so yeah. hot. I was yeah. pouring sweat, and and it's a lot of work to yeah. to land a big fish like that. And uh, yeah. So and I just so I I think that's a big part of it. I just I just it's physically uncomfortable, and you know I'm perfectly happy to go up to the Klickitat River in Washington and stand in the rain for a week and fish for steelhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it is different. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> and actually, actually, Baja is is relatively reasonable because you do have the desert and the ocean to kind of complement or counteract each other, so to speak. But yeah, um, well, you, you go down to Belize or Costa Rica and stuff, and then it's it's all humid. You know, there's no there's no dry area. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. But I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I was just thinking. There's a whole another twenty books about you know the salt <laughs> out there waiting for you uh, of stories and uh, yeah. Uh, well, Tom uh, Tom McGuane has writes beautifully about saltwater fishing, and in fact, it was some of the um, tarpon and bonefish stories of his in uh, his book, The Longest Silence which I still think is the best fishing book ever written. Um, and it, that's what got me down there in the first place. Yeah. Because he just writes so beautifully about it. And, and you know, he talks about it being hot, but um, I, guess he's, uh, I guess he's tougher than I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, how did you get uh, – we're running uh, short on time here, but uh, – how did you get recognized by Simon and Schuster? That's a that's a big publisher to get. Uh, yeah, it by. was it was totally arbitrary. I had a couple of books out with Fruit um, Publishing in uh, Boulder, now defunct, and um, the story I got much later was that they called my somebody called my editor from upstairs in a corner office and said, you know, this fly fishing thing seems to be getting big. Why don't you go get us some fly fishing books? And so he bought uh, the paperback rights to two of my books, and he got Harry Middleton, a couple of Harry Middleton books, and two or three other fly fishing writers. can't remember who now. And... Um, they did okay. Mine did okay. Went into subsequent printings. And um, 
I was off contract. I had a two-book contract with Pruitt. I was off that. I wrote a little book for Stackpole Press about small streams. And then when it was time to do the next book of essays, I just went to Simon & Schuster. And uh, they already had two of my books. And And so I've pretty much been there ever since. There's a footnote, which is that in the interim, I was up um, visiting Tom McGuane, and he said, okay, now you've made it to Simon & Schuster on your own. Now it's time to get an agent. And I said, why is that? And he said, because agents are like bank loans. Once you prove you don't need one, you can get a real good one. (laughs) So I ended up getting an agent uh, more or less through uh, with the help of Nick Lyons. And that guy quadrupled the advance on my next book. Really? And that was kind of when I actually stopped being a, a trout bum and started to kind of make a living. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good uh, good tip for uh, aspiring writers. And That's my last question is um, – any advice you would give to aspiring writers, uh, particularly in the, you know, the outdoors or, or, or fishing uh, world? Well, yeah, um, there's a couple of a couple of things. One is, I know it's not easy, but don't be impatient. It generally takes every writer I've ever talked to has just a horror story lasting 10 or 15 years about not being able to get published and not being able to get paid and on and on. Um, You've got to be patient. You've got to realize that you're learning the craft as you go along, and uh, it's going to take time. I mean, you you don't get to be a a good writer overnight, and... um, and another thing is just read your brains out. Read the best writing you can get your hands on and pay attention to why it's good. And for that matter, when you read something that's terrible, pay attention to why it's terrible. Um, I've had some teachers uh, through the years who've helped me out with writing, but I've learned more from just from reading. Mm-hmm. Um just just reading books, good and bad, and trying to figure out why they're good and why they're bad. And the other thing is, when you get to the stage where you're you're looking to do a book, do your best to get an agent. That's all. Just get yeah. somebody who can, because most of us, I mean, publishing is a very small world and it's really ingrown, and um, you need somebody who knows the ins and outs of it. Oh. To handle that for you. Is there one book um, that you've read uh, that's, that you think really has affected your life in, in some way, shape, or form that was exceptional? Well, uh, The Longest Silence I already mentioned, but right. I think that was a life-changing book for me, and not as a fisherman, but as a writer. Oh, um, okay. McGuane is just... He's just a fabulously controlled writer. There isn't a hair out of place, you know, not a word. And um, I think Jim Harrison's novel, Dalva, which I think is his masterpiece, I think that was 
life-changing also in terms of writing. Um, I often say I admire McGuane's writing because of his incredible, almost superhuman control, and I admire Harrison's writing for his apparent lack of control. And <laughs> I and I like to think I'm kind of halfway in between both of them. I'm well, more controlled more than Harrison, but I'm a little crazier than McGuane. Two more bit books on my list now. See, you're, you've become part of the problem here, John. <laughs> <laughs> of book acquisitions here, so uh, I haven't read either one of them, but I will now, so thanks for the recommendation. Well, um, we're out of time. Uh, it's gone by quickly, as it always does, uh, and uh, if you'll just hang with us a few more minutes, John, um, we're going to give away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and a copy of your book, uh, Fly Rod of Your Own, courtesy of Great. Simon & Schuster. And uh, so stick with us just a couple more minutes. Um, all right. Uh, Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best rainbow trophy trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more and to get involved. Again, it's SaveBristolBay.org. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show. that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away a few prizes. Uh, the winners of our drawing are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on uh, the, the chance to, to win some of these uh, great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll give away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about the FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, a great organization to be part of and support, and uh, they're doing a lot for all of us as fly fishers, so check them out. Um, and our winner for that is Ian Davidson, Ian Davidson in Michigan. So congratulations, Ian. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy your, your membership to the FFI. And now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, you can learn more about uh, them from amatobooks.com. And uh, they have periodicals and books on fly fishing and uh, wealth of information there. So check them out. And our winner for that subscription is Rich Stanton uh, in New Jersey. Rich Stanton in New Jersey for that one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So congratulations to both of you. And now we'll give away a copy of John's book, Fly Rod of Your Own, courtesy of Simon & Schuster. And um, let me just clear my queue. Now, the way you participate in this is you go to our home page and fill that form out with your answer there. The first person that win, uh, gets it right uh, will win John's book. Um, the question is, what year was Trout Bum published? What year was Trout Bum published the first time? So we'll see if anybody was paying attention here, John. <laughs> and uh, you can tell us if they get it right. 
Ooh, I got a I got an answer here. Nineteen eighty seven. Close but no prize, right, John? Right. Okay. Sorry, Dean. See if we get another one. Oh, we got uh, 1986. That's it. That's it. Okay, Ed Constantini. You just won yourself uh, one of John's books and um, a fly rod of your own. That's your most recent book, right, John? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So there, okay. There'll be Good. there'll be another one in 2000. In 2000. Yeah. In 2000. Yeah. Or in uh, 2020. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's where I like it. 2020. All right. We'll be looking all looking forward to that. Hey, John, it was a pleasure talking to you tonight and, and having you share all your knowledge and experiences with us. Uh, it, was, it was a real pleasure, and, and thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you. It was fun. Good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, hopefully all of you have found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line of our menu and uh, the archive. You'll find all of our past shows, over 280 shows, which you can search by keyword uh, keyword phrase, trout, tarpon, Madison River, whatever. Uh, you'll probably find something on the subject. Go ahead and explore it. I, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at all the great information that we have. And our next broadcast will be on October 17th, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. In that show, I'm going to interview Tom Boyd. And our topic for the show will be Mongolia, a one-of-a-kind adventure. Tom shares a trip of a lifetime to Mongolia. Uh, he traveled over the steppes where there were no roads, navigating with GPS and stopping to talk to nomads for directions. Uh, he fished the, the Shishkid and Tengis River-protected area where no Americans had ever been before. So listen in and find out about the different types of fish and the fishing he did in including his largest trophy, a 40-inch Tymon. We'd like to thank the Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Simon & Schuster, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster, Baja Fly Fishing Company, and International Federation of Fly Fishers for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.